Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. For this time of hearing the Word of God, I'd like us to turn to the book of Job and uh, look at the 29th and 31st chapters of Job. I want to welcome all of you who are fathers, um, who are visiting us today. Uh, happy Father's Day to you. Victor Hugo, the author of the novel Les Miserables, which uh, many of you have seen the play that's based on that book. Anyhow, Victor Hugo once listed the 14 greatest works or authors in the literature of the Western world, and then he narrowed that list down to six. And the six were Homer, Aeschylus, Isaiah, Job, Dante, and Shakespeare. Then he was asked to, to, to bring it down even more, narrow it down to one, and Hugo said, quote, if I had to save one piece of literature in the world, I would save Job. What it is, is a book, at the heart of it is a dialogue between Job and his friends on the theme of the nature and meaning of suffering. And suffering is everywhere. You live in the midst of suffering. This is what the Book of Common Prayer means when it says, in the midst of life, we live in death. And you can really separate Men in this world, and that's inclusive of women, you can separate everybody in this world between those who hear the suffering of the world and bear it, and those who won't hear it and refuse to bear it. And if, if I may, a father is someone who hears the suffering of the world and feels called to bear it, Okay? That may be a very helpful definition of fatherhood to you. That a a father sees the suffering and bears it. Helps to bear it. You know, we're praying this morning. Mary Lee has been taking care of uh, Elias, the little baby, and, and, and Mary Louise, right? And so as we're praying, did you hear what I heard? I heard Mary Louise start to cry. I'd asked Mary Lee how it went this morning, and immediately Mary Lee started crying. And, you know, I really don't appreciate that. You know, the whole reason you have a wife is to bear the suffering of the world so you don't have to. Have you not heard that definition of marriage? A better question is, have you not seen that definition of marriage, (laughs) you know? Now, of course, I don't mean that, those of you who are visiting today. Um, But then when I heard Mary, Mary didn't have her angry cry. If you noticed, it was a mournful, plaintive cry this morning. And you just think of the suffering that little one goes through because of her skin, because of her intestines, her stomach, her inability. And you just think, her life is a life of suffering. And then you begin to go out from her, and because her mother is my daughter, then you think of the suffering of Hannah. Then you think of the suffering, and everywhere you look in this room today 
are people who either do or do not recognize the suffering of this world and do or do not help to bear it. If I were being aggressive this morning, which of course I never am, I would almost want to define millennials as those who don't see it and won't bear it. Huh? Apt? Apt! Says his pastor's apt. <laughs> oh, well, Daniel, it's certainly not true of you. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at Job and see how Job notices and bears the suffering of the world. I want that to be our definition of fatherhood. And then I want us at the end to think of how God has blessed this church with fathers. So that's where we're headed. So let's look at Job 29 and 30. This is the book that Victor Hugo would save. Now, at the heart of the book is a dialogue between Job and his friends on this theme of the nature and meaning of suffering. What philosophers in, in, in antiseptic discourse will refer to as theodicy. But there's no theodicy here in the book of Job because everything is painfully real. Job suffered. And at the center of the book is his friends trying to deal with his suffering. Now chapters 1 and 2 present a blow-by-blow account of each of these losses, as well as the response of Job and of his wife to the losses. First, Job's oxen and donkeys are stolen by his enemies, the Sabaeans, and they kill Job's servants who had been plowing the field with them. And then fire comes from heaven next. And it burns up Job's sheep and the shepherds who are guarding the sheep. And then Job's enemies, the Chaldeans, stole his camels and killed the servants guarding them. And then a great wind like we had out here on Enright Road last night. A great wind came out of the wilderness. It blew down the house in which all of Job's kids were partying, having a feast. All right, And it killed all of them. The roof fell in on them. And... How did Job respond to this? Well, Scripture tells us in Job 1, 21 and 22, he, that means Job, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this editorial comment of God, through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God nor did he blame God. When the reader might be tempted to think things could not possibly get any worse for Job, Satan afflicts Job personally, covering his body with painful boils from head to foot. And great as that pain is, a greater pain now presents itself in the form of the faithlessness of his precious wife. Job's wife looks at what Job has lost and the pain he now suffers in his body, and she embraces a bitter spirit of unbelief, and she calls her husband to follow her in this wickedness. In Job 2, 9 and 10, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Some wife. Demonstrating his godliness, Job responded to his wife, He, Job, said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? 
And then again, this statement. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now on comes onto the scene comes uh, come Job's friends, his three friends, and we read in chapter two when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him. They came each one from his own place: Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to do what to sympathize, to sympathize with him and comfort him. We have a tendency, knowing how the story ends, to be very judgmental against uh, Job's friends. And so many people make a lot of... uh, Many people talk an awful lot about how bad Job's friends are. But... My guess is that most of us here could never rise to the level of the excellence of Job's friends. I think we're so far beneath Job's friends. Uh, And I think we we should keep this in mind. Let me keep reading in chapter 2, verse 12. When, and it's speaking up their friends, when they lifted it. And you remember that it says that they came to sympathize and comfort him. Okay? And then it says, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. So they saw Job at a distance, they didn't recognize him. Well, you know why they didn't recognize him. His face was haggard. He probably lost weight. He was covered with sores, pus, you know, boils, right? And when they didn't recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. How many times have you wept over the suffering of your friends? These are not cheap friends. And then it says, each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. You know that I'm trying to rub our noses in the fact that we have lost the ability to grieve today and that we're trivializing funerals and burials. And to me, it's so obvious, having grown up around death, how our beingness has become unbelievably light. And especially at funerals, where we have all this chipper talk and all these jokes and celebrations of life, and we put them off for three months so Johnny can, you know, take his finals and not be inconvenienced, you know, and, 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 and there's no crime. And you would think that we don't miss, you would actually think that death is not an enemy if you observe modern church funerals today. You know? Well, none of this with Job's friends. They raised their voices and wept, and they were not being paid to do it. And then it says, each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. There was no effort to escape the work of grieving on their part. Then, the part I really like, It says, then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. These are not cheap friends. You imagine me sitting with my mouth shut for seven days and seven nights? It's incomprehensible. (laughs) You know. 
Look at the love of these friends. So don't be cheap in the way that you view these friends. They didn't start saying the things they said, which were largely wrong. They didn't start saying them until after they had proven that they loved Job. So this brings us to the end of the second chapter. And what happens in the next, you know, 27 chapters is a recounting of the back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And that's the center of the book. Um, Then chapters 29 to 31 are Job's final speech. And chapter 29 contains Job's lament over how far down he has fallen. And then he lists the blessings and the honors that he used to enjoy. He laments their passing. He illustrates how much he has lost. Then in chapter 31, Job turns directly to God and he calls God to remember and to honor his uprightness, his righteousness. Now right here, because we have not been taught to think, and because our thoughts are very, very um, superficial, and because we're Christians, and because we're Protestants, and because we're generally, most of us are Reformed Protestants, right? Okay? At this point, we're tempted to answer when we hear that Job is claiming his righteousness to God. We're tempted to answer, there is none righteous, not even one. And of course, this is the whole argument of Job's friends, right? Job's friends are consistently saying he's not righteous. That's their explanation, all right? And we would like to pick at that and to to use it. We would like to explain the suffering of Job as we would like to deny Job's claims of righteousness because there's none righteous, no, not one. And again, it's the unbearable lightness of our being. You know, we learned that we were saved by grace, by, you know, through faith, and this is a gift of God, and not by works, lest any man should boast. And so we can all chill out about sanctification, holiness, the holiness without which no man will see God. But we just liltingly dance through life with our Reformed doctrine, you know? (coughs) You know what I'm saying? And so right here, when we hear Job is claiming his righteousness before God, it makes us a little insecure because he's suffering. We know suffering comes because of sin, which, of course, is true. And we have chosen the path of least resistance in our life, which, of course, means no sanctification, right? And so we're just filled with Job's friend's thoughts, you know? Job, there's none righteous. How dare he look at God and claim righteousness before God, you know? Right? If you read the end of the book of Job, which I would put <coughs> as. <laughs> you ready for this? I would, I would say it's the most fascinatingly green text I've ever read in my life. Now, if any of you ever read it, do you understand why I'm laughing? I mean,. It's all about God's glory in nature. That's what it's about, you know. So it's a green manifesto. 
But of course, it's not green because it's not honoring nature. It's honoring nature's God, right? It's honoring nature's God. Listen, if you've never read those chapters, sit down and read them at one reading. It is unbelievable, the intensity of God's answer to Job. And what is God's answer to Job? Well, it's the same answer that Paul, the Apostle Paul gives in Romans. Who are you, O oh man? You know? Oh my goodness, do you know how good I feel when I hear the Apostle Paul say that every time I cut grass? Something deep inside me is healed. Who are you, O oh man? And that's really a summary of the last few chapters of the book of Job. Except that nature is used as an illustration of our, if I can coin a word, our puniness. You know, our utter sort of drop-in-the-bucket-ish-ness. We are nothing. You ain't nothing, even if you are black. You ain't nothing even if you are a man or a woman or a child or an American with an American passport. (laughs) You ain't nothing because God is God, right? And that's how the book ends. But the end of the story is God gives everything back and more to Job doubles it on him. And that's the book of Job. Now, remember, don't just pass off Job's claims of righteousness so that you don't have to deal with a man who is infinitely superior to you in his holiness. That's why you're doing it. You're doing it because you don't want to have to recognize that there's someone who actually loved God and tried to be like him right? So can all of us have big enough minds and hearts and small enough egos to listen to Job without being censorious? Okay? You you okay? All right. Okay. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but here it comes. All right. Now we're going to read Job's chapter 29 and Job chapter 31. Job 29. And Job again took up his discourse and said, so we're going into the lament. Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. When the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, yeah. He doesn't say that. That's not in the text. I added that. I was looking at Alex with his children. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. When my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I now you have to understand the gate of the city. The gate of the city is the place where men, sorry women, where men did the work of leadership and authority. If you had a contract to make, you went there to make the contract and have witnesses, okay? If you had a complaint, you went there to make complaint and have the men of the city make their judgments. If you needed a judge, you'd go to the court at the public gate, but it was an informal 
formal thing. That's where they all met, and that's where they adjudicated and, and contracted and did everything related to the, uh, shall we say, the ministry of external affairs of human civilization. All right? And so Job would go to the, to the public gate, to the gate of the city. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men, now this is the reception, this is the reception that Job had when he showed up in this place of public authority and leadership. Listen to it. It says, the young men saw me and hid themselves. They hid themselves. And the old men arose and stood, like you do for a woman who walks in a room. It shows honor. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, it gave witness of me. In other words, everybody in there recognized the righteousness of Job. Because, okay, so here he says, why did I have such respect? Well, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Oh. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart. So look at this, guys. Look at it. It's just drop-dead gorgeous. Job spent his life dealing with the suffering of the poor, the suffering of the orphan, the suffering of the person who is about to die, ready to perish, and the suffering of the widow. Okay? This is Job. Now, what's there not to like? What's there not to love? This is this man. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was, oh, more suffering. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Okay, you're watching this now. So you have the poor the orphan, the dying, the widow, the blind, and the lame. I was a father, oh, the needy. I was a father to the needy. I was a father to the needy. He took on him the responsibility for the poor, for the people that, you know, the illegal aliens that we want to kick out of the United States of America. The poor. And I investigated the case which I did not know. He says, I broke the jaws of the wicked. How do you care for the poor and bear their suffering without busting the chops of the wicked? How can you do it? You have to become an aggressor if you're going to care for those who suffer. Right? I mean, you know this, right? I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. In other words, much suffering in life is the result of the wickedness of men. And you can't care for the sufferer and take on yourself their suffering without stopping the oppression and snatching out of the jaws of the oppressor. And, and you know, we act as if there are no oppressors in America today. Or worse, if we think there are oppressors, 
Oh, brother, I, you don't get me started. The way that America today deals with where oppression is is utterly foolish. If America thinks there's oppression somewhere, the one sure thing you know is there's no oppression there. I mean, honestly, it's, it's almost that true. Prophets are never popular. My wife reminded me of that this week. And so if, if there is a social justice cause that's popular, uh, please don't jump on the bandwagon. And if you do, would you please hide it from me? <laughs> because I want to love you. And so here he is breaking the jaws of the wicked and snatching the prey from his teeth. And he says, then I thought, I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new to me and my bow is renewed in my hand. So he's pretty sure that he's in the cat's bird seat. And then he says, to me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them. They waited for me for my speech as for the rain. And opened their mouths, their mouth as for the spring rain. What an image. I smiled on them when they did not believe, and the light of my, of my face they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. <coughs> This is fatherhood. This is fatherhood regardless of whether somebody's married or single. This is fatherhood regardless of whether he and his wife are able to have children or not. This is fatherhood regardless of whether the man is 12, 14, 16, 18, or 78. Fathers take responsibility, and they take responsibility at the places other men won't. And those places are always the places of suffering. Do you understand that? They're the places that nobody else wants to stand. They're the places that if you take responsibility, you will be alone. That's fatherhood. Now, Job has described his life in the former days, and at this point he turns to God. Listen as he speaks to God. Job 31, beginning with verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? We all know what that's about, eh? And what is the portion of God from above, the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? So here he's describing God's character. He misses nothing. You all see this. And then he says this to God, having just confessed God's omniscience. He then says this, If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. This is calling down judgment from God if he's lying about his integrity. 
If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let him, let me sow and another eat. <clears throat> Excuse me. And let my crops be uprooted again. He's speaking to God. He's saying, then do this to me. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, we all know what that's about. May my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. (laughs) Any of you men out there willing to say this to God about your lust? Huh? I'd like to hear one no. You wouldn't say this to God. Admit it. He goes on, he says, If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves, you know, we're so certain that, you know, slavery is just always the epitome of evil, you know? And, and we justify this, the slavery of the American South based on Scripture. Okay, fine. You want to see whether or not this, the, the chattel slavery of the South was like biblical slavery? Here we go. You listening to this? If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they have filed a complaint against me. <laughs> this is the slavery of Job. I have not even failed to listen to a woman's slave when she has a complaint against me. What then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? I am answerable before God for the treatment of my slaves, most particularly at the point where a female slave complains against me. I must listen to her. He says, otherwise what? What could... What then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? This is slavery in scripture. We are equal. Okay? And I am responsible to listen to complaints against me from a woman's slave. He says, verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten any morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. How many of you eat alone? He always made sure there was somebody there to share it with him. But from my youth, he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy, I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, If his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, and then notice this, because I saw I had support in the gate. You know, Roe v. Wade, well, the Supreme Court made the decision. Abortion's legal. We have support in the gate. And that's everything in America now. The courts are just willy-nilly trashing all of God's laws. 
And so we have a perfect opportunity to say, well, I have support in the gate. Job says, I never let it, let support in the gate determine my actions. Never. Job, <laughs> okay, you ready for this? Job obviously didn't properly understand or appreciate uh, <clears throat> precedent. Let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow, for calamity from God is a terror to me. Isn't that sweet? Calamity from God is a terror to me. And because of his majesty, I can do nothing. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed in my hand, my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. That, too, would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. And this is what all of, uh, well, okay, maybe not all. I do know somebody at Scripps who's godly. But almost all the science and naturalism and evolutionary talk and green and all of this stuff is the worship of the creation instead of the creator. It doesn't redound to the glory of God unless it's Al Parker, and Al Parker's weird. You know? We're not doing science and studying nature so that we are better at worshiping God. And so we just have this constant worship of creation that requires us to rid the earth of man, of his consumption, of his energy needs, of his number of children, of... Of, of even his body in the ground. You've got to burn it, you know, the body. You can't, you can't take up good ground with a body, you know? And this is the worship of the creation instead of the creator that's going on all around you. I hope your teeth are constantly on edge over this. And Job says it would have been iniquity, and I would have denied. I would have denied God above. When you see green that honors God, you know, environmentalism honors God. That's good environmentalism. But how often is science and, and green glorifying God? And I mean explicitly. It is he who hath made us, not we ourselves. Which you always have to keep in mind when you hear about stuff like this. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? Job shared his meat with everyone. The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. This again, I'm telling you people, our doors are to be open to Mexicans. Do you hear me? They are aliens. You say, illegal aliens. I say, hey, what were the Israelites when they tried to go through those countries on their way out of Egypt? You know, those countries all had laws that you could not violate their borders. And so, guess what? They told the Israelites, no, you may not pass through our land. They had every right to do that, didn't they? 
right? And what happened to them if they didn't allow Israel to go through their land? (laughs) We better be Christian first and not patriotic as we understand it first in this country. Because God is very serious in the Old Testament about the sojourner in our midst. And guess what? Job was righteous and Job cared for the alien. Just like Lot. Lot didn't let him sleep in the center of town. He brought him in his home. Job brought the alien in his home. Okay? All right? And that's not political. That's just biblical. Although you'll argue that I'm being political. And I'm not in favor of breaking the laws, but... That one's hopeless. I'll die with that one unresolved with you people. But anyhow, I'll keep going and be more predictable now. Okay. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors? And that one is really, really important for us in America today because we think we're not persecuted and we think that we're not being influenced to disobey God by threats and punishment in the United States because it's uh, relative deprivation. You know, we look at China and what's going down there right now and we say, well, that's so awful. We shouldn't even talk about persecution. But then what we do is we miss what's going on here. And the fact is... All it takes is a tiny little threat of disapproval from our great, 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 great grandmother to keep Christians from honoring God. Because we're so soft and so fearful and and we want people's approval so badly. You could almost say that evangelism over the last century has been transmogrified into a desperate search for approval by Christians. (laughs) You know... You know what I mean? It's like we just are so eager to make it clear to everyone that they don't have to give up anything, and least of all our approval if they'll just come to Jesus. You know, my dad lampooned it back when he was writing 40 years ago as friendship evangelism, you know? Friendship with the world, of course, you know? And so Job says what? Look at what he says. he says, I have not turned to iniquity because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me. And this is such a good thing for us to read. Will you think about all the things we do because of our fear of our families? You know? I like that quote that who knows how many crimes have been committed in the name of of, and he's talking about the academy, all right? And he says, nobody can have any estimate of the number of crimes that have been committed by men in the academy who are, who are afraid of not appearing sufficiently progressive. And that's us with our families. Not, we're so desperate to have the approval of our families that we'll, we'll do anything to avoid them accusing us of not being compassionate, you know? Or whatever it is, the, the currency in your family. You know what I'm saying? Whatever it is, it's like Christians in America today 
are desperately seeking approval. And so when we read Job saying, hey, listen guys, uh, I didn't fear the great multitude and sin because of it, and I didn't I wasn't running from the contempt of families. And I wasn't in terror over having family. So this is the way that, that Job did his fatherhood, is he looked at the suffering, he broke the jaw of the wicked, he snatched the prey, and he did everything he did because he refused to be intimidated and to give in to, to his pathetic desire for approval, he would not allow his family to terrorize him. He would not allow his righteousness to be corrupted by pressure from other people. And that's the description of of Christians today. We just, every single time the world comes at us, what happens? We give just enough to take the aggression off the edge of the world. You know, just enough to let them know that we're tipping the hat to the new constitution. You understand this. And we just keep missing. We keep having to tip. And then we, you know, we tip the hat. You know, and that's what Revoice is. You know, that's what all the spiritual friendship, gobbledygook talk in the church, all that stuff. It's tipping the hat to the new revolution. You know, or to the new constitution, making a bow to the new revolution. But anyhow, meet the new boss, the same as the old boss. And, and, and meanwhile, Christians say, and we won't get fooled again. And we're just fooled and fooled and fooled and fooled. Every single thing. This is what's happening to the church today. We're so afraid of disapproval. We're so afraid of having people condemn us because we simply obey Scripture, that we're constantly moving more and more towards the world. Do you understand this? Job says, I didn't do that. My family's disapproval did not terrorize me. So we know he had disapproval of his family, and we know it didn't terrorize him. And we know that's how he did what was right. We know he thought it through. No, I'm going to choose God over my family. Are you all with me? And this is part of the righteousness of Job. Okay? And if you think if your family's Christian, you don't have to make a conscious decision not to live for their approval, (laughs) you're crazy. You have to make a decision that you're going to honor God in the face of, and you remember Jesus said, unless you hate your father, your mother, your wife, your son, your daughter, you have to make a decision that God comes first. And Job had made that decision. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I'd bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together. Now, where in Scripture have you read about furrows weeping? Do you know that there are a number of places in the Bible where it, 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 uh, it, it, it uses, uh, it uses uh, what, what loud, it uses anthropomorphisms to refer to the soil, to the ground. 
it treats the ground and the soil as if it's a person. And do you know where most of those things are? Most of them are, it happens in referring to the Canaanites in, in the promised land. It consistently speaks of that land vomiting out the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And then God says to them, and if you as my people do the same sins they did, the land will vomit you out also. The land is not vomiting out Job. Such a beautiful image. It says, furrows weeping together. If I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat and stink wood (laughs) instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Okay, now that's the end of Job's lament, and it's the end of him calling God to judge him. Now, what's the application to us? This is fatherhood. Fatherhood is lonely. Do you hear me? Fatherhood is not popular. Fatherhood is respected. But it's not popular. As a matter of fact, fatherhood isn't concerned to be popular. Because it's never popular to follow God. This is fatherhood. And fatherhood lives for the approval of God. And because it lives for the approval of God, it lives at the nexus of human suffering and need. And because it fears and loves God, and it knows that God so loved the world that, it, that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him, for the son didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world, well, the father sees the father almighty, and so the father loves the world, and the father cares for the world. There is not a moment in the Father's life where he sees need and suffering that he does not himself personally feel like he is responsible. This is fatherhood. Now, I'm not saying that he always does the right thing. And that's the thing that you women have to just sort of chill out about. Sort of. Kind of. For heaven's sakes, your husband is wrong. So what? You know, imagine how much more wrong he'd be if he lived for your approval. You know, you can always improve the discipline of your husband, of your children. I know. There's so many things he doesn't know when he disciplines them. And you can improve the way he talks to other people at church. You can give him mints so his breath isn't bad. You know, women are a male-improving machine. (laughs) But for heaven's sakes, please, mothers, don't take away the initiative of your sons in growing to be fathers. A young man trying to be a father is a very gangly and awkward individual. You know? And it's because he wants to do what's right. And so he's going to fall. Imagine if mother birds didn't allow their baby birds to fly until they were able to soar. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Oh, my. Come on. 
love the initiative of your husband. Love his, his impetuosity. Love his firmness. Don't squelch fatherhood. Mothers, we love you. But for heaven's sakes, let a father be a father. Okay, so that's one application. But then here's another one. The Lord has blessed us as a church with mothers in Israel. You all know that. The Lord has blessed us with fathers. We have many fathers in this church who take responsibility for suffering. And it is a beautiful thing. If you're visiting today, uh, I'd ask you to trust me in this. But this is a church that's filled with men who take responsibility. And I could use a lot of illustrations. But there's one man who's hiding his head from me right now. He's sitting behind Curtis, who does have a large head. Uh, There you are. (laughs) Yeah, you don't think you're a father. You just think you're, (laughs) yeah. But think of what you did recently where you took responsibility for pain and a problem and you brought it to the attention of a pastor. Would you remember that, please? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. And it was excellent. And you often do this. You often take responsibility, and it's a beautiful thing to see in you. And I know that you think I'm crazy, but I think I could get a lot of elders to agree with me. So you be encouraged by that. But I want to talk about another man this morning. Uh, you know, I could go through so many men in this church, but I want to tell you a little bit, little something about uh, a, a man here who, who is about as hard-headed and hard to convince of anything as any man I've ever met in my life. And that's Mike. I mean, have you ever tried to convince Mike about anything? Have any of you ever tried? Lisa, you better put your hand up. <laughs> and on a scale of one to, say, Googleplex, where would you rate him in stubbornness? Yeah, way up there. Yeah, that's right. So this last week we had an elders meeting, and Mike came into the elders meeting reported on negotiating a new loan for the church. He'd consolidated some loans, and and he had talked to the bank. How many times do you think he talked to the bank? Thirteen visits to Terre Haute. Thirteen. Thirteen. No rocket loan for us. We don't care about quicken. We, we, we're happy to be slowing as long as it getting us the gooden. And boy, did it. You wouldn't believe. But Mike gave us a history of his negotiation of our loans. And do you know that since 2007, when we took out a 1.3 million loan with and it's a commercial, it's a commercial loan, right? Since 2007, our loan rates have 
almost always hovered within half a point of prime. And it's a commercial loan. This stuff is unheard of. And, and often, it was under prime. And so you say, well, yeah, Mike knows money. Okay, you're going to dismiss Mike's fatherhood like that, huh? You have absolutely no idea of Mike's compassion and care for people who suffer. One of my favorites is a man in our church who was just completely in bondage to pornography. You know, Mike would come over every week or two at a scheduled time, and he would meet with that man. He would drive 50 minutes in, 50 minutes home, in the evening to find a time he could meet with that man and help that man to fight that sin. And I bet no more than a handful of you even knew about that. Listen, if you want something done, if you want counsel, do you know that Mike has given counsel in this church over and over again that the people have just said, eh, I'm not going to do that. And he just keeps freely giving his counsel to us as a church. Do you know, there's, there's hardly anybody in this church, there may be one or two people, that I could ask Mike to do something to help anybody in this church. And he would instantly do it. And is it a surprise that a man who personifies the care for the suffering of Mike, is it a surprise that he's stubborn? I mean, it kind of goes together, right? He has to be hard-headed in order to have such firm principles of serving anybody that asks. You say, well, Mike's a sinner. And my response is, well, of course he's a sinner. Of course he is. But do you know how he is, from the time he came to this church, he has lovingly cared for us. And by the way, I'm not saying this because I'm worried about Mike's reputation. I'm not at all worried. Not in the least. But I was just struck as I prepared to preach with the way that God has provided for us. Mary Lee and I were talking about this. I was talking to other pastors after he met with us. How God has provided for us as a church by having a a man who thinks of himself, he's not, but he thinks of himself as a country hillbilly farmer. And it just got in his head that he was going to drive 50 minutes from way out in, I don't know where he lives, it's somewhere out there, to come to this church, and from the moment he came here, he has blessed us. And there's an awful lot of men in this church who have done the same. You think about the blessing that Bob has been. How many marriages he's been one of the groomsmen or the best man. I asked him this week, and I think he said 85, is it? 85. Think of the men that Bob has cared for as they care for him. I'm not going to keep going. But oh boy, I could be talking about this until the cows come in. And listen, people, let's honor fatherhood. Your husband doesn't have to be perfect. Let him make some mistakes. 
you know? Either that or, or show him that what he thinks is a mistake actually isn't. That he was actually doing it right where he thinks it's wrong. Now, that would be a good wife. <laughs> Honey, I know that you feel like you did what was wrong there, but may I encourage you and tell you that where you think you're wrong, you're actually right. And where you think you're right, you're actually wrong. <laughs> no, that's a joke. <laughs> okay, let's come to the Lord's table.